Welcome to the All Things Performance Podcast, where our goal is to stay hungry, to get better, and to move the meter. My name is Josiah Igano, and whether you're looking to improve physically, to get fed spiritually, or to challenge yourself mentally, we're digging deep to find those gems, and we're going to find them. Let's go. Let's, let's, let's go. Today's conversation is going to be with Renee Bahati Klug, and she is an innovative educational leader and researcher committed to many things. She's very dynamic, but more specifically, cultural intelligence, which we're going to learn more about today, building people-centered curricula and fostering inclusive environments. She does a great job of doing that. And when you look at her bio, her body of work, her resume, she has been educating students and equipping and training leaders from over 100 nations for the last 20 years. Think about that in terms of global impact. And when you look at her teaching career for the last 17 of those years, Renee has taught English composition, creative writing, literature, English as a second language to diverse groups, not only here in the United States, but abroad. And she has taken this to the highest of heights because she's a doctoral candidate and she has successfully defended her proposal. So she is ABD and she will be uh, soon called Dr. Renee Bahati Klug. And as founder and chief trainer and consultant for culturally intelligent training and consulting, Renee brings a much needed, fresh perspective on this topic of cultural intelligence, right? Cultural intelligence as it relates to racism, as it relates to diversity, as it relates to inclusion, as it relates to just navigating human nature, especially in times like this. So without any further ado, we're going to get right into today's conversation. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. It's been a good day, uh, full of a lot of instruction and design and conversation. So I'm happy to be here with you. That's awesome. Well, we're glad to have you. Uh, for those of you who do not know, Renee uh, Bahati Klug is the founder and chief trainer and consultant of Culturally Intelligent Training and Consulting Services. And we're going to learn more about that today. And just to jump right into it, right, because this is an area that uh, there's a large gap in the marketplace. There is a large gap um, in, in, the, in the globe, in our country, within organizations, churches, teams, units, you name it. There is a huge gap when it comes to being culturally intelligent, right? And the first thing that I want to ask you is why? Why are you so passionate about this work? What qualifies you to stand in this space? Well, um, you know, the qualifications could be debatable, but no, I'm kidding. <laughs> so, I, Josiah, it's a good question. And I think that it has both personal and professional answers to it. Personally, I am a uh, multi-ethnic individual. My dad immigrated here in 69 from India. He married a woman of whiteness who's Irish, Polish, French. I don't want to ever minimize the Irish Polish Frenchness and put up the Indianness, but even though the Indianness is very forward because of my skin color. But, um, you know, the first generation of Americans who could actually legally interracially marry happened at, in the late 60s. So I was born in the 70s and I'm the first generation to grow up. Um, you know, you could say a lot of people say biracially, a lot of people say multi ethnically. So personally, I grew up never knowing where I belonged. I grew up in Phoenix where it was not that diverse. And so we were, there were like three brown people uh, it, at my elementary school. And I didn't feel quite American, but within my Indian family, I didn't quite feel Indian because I wasn't fully Indian. So that was the, the first fruits of just knowing that I was different, knowing that I wasn't ashamed of it, but also knowing that I wanted to understand it. So that understanding led to just this beautiful curiosity, in my opinion, of just wanting to travel. So I did a lot of study abroad in high school and college, and I continued to travel. And then I became an English instructor, and that, you know, because I love literature, and that turned into my um, getting a job at a university as a trainer of other faculty. Because in my working with international students specifically, um, I was able to have academically rigorous curricula, but also in create inclusive environments. 
and that's when it started. But the interesting thing is, is in my trainings, which I kind of had to self-develop at first, I noticed that um, American audiences loved what I was doing. But a and, lot and of times, can, yeah, can yeah, 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 please interrupt me anytime. So, I hope I'm, so, yeah. so you said American audiences. So yeah. at, at a visceral level, mm-hmm. right? At a visceral level, yeah. what does that mean? So, and I should be, I should clarify, because there's a lot of Americans, there's North American, South American, and then within North America, there's different. So audiences situated within the United States, I should say okay. that. And is it um, primarily a, a people, a certain people group, an ethnic group? Were there, not necessarily. I would say mostly white, mostly white okay. people within the United States would attend these trainings and they, uh, they appealed to them. Um, but a lot of them requested very culture specific information, like what do Chinese people think about, or what do Indians, da, da, da. And I couldn't give that knowledge. But then when I took some of these intercultural competence trainings to international audiences, they didn't always fly because I think a lot of cultures felt pigeonholed. And I was devastated, Josiah. And I was like, listen, I got to, this is not working. It's not working. And I discovered the framework of cultural intelligence, which was discovered by Early and Ong, 2003, post 9-11, where they realized, listen, it's not just about knowing about other cultures, it's understanding yourself. How do you work? How do you function? How do you interact? What are your emotional triggers? And that emotional intelligence is actually culturally bound as we move in and out of different cultures. And this is not just international. This is also with different populations, different generations, LGBTQIA plus community, different genders, gender identities, uh, family situations, socioeconomics. All of these things make up cultures and how we interact with people of diversity and specifically diversity to us matters and how we behave is really the pivotal moment there. So that's when I started my doctorate and that's what I'm focusing on in my doctorate. And so all of these years in the doctorate (laughs) and I guess people's feedback have qualified me, Dr. Igano, to do what I do. But listen, there's a lot I still don't know and I surround myself with people who do. Yes. to do this effectively. All right, I'm done answering that question that took, <laughs> well, <laughs> it was a 40 year long question. So. No, I know, I know. And I know that you're qualified and those that know you know that you are qualified. I wanted to make sure that the, the audience uh, understands who they're listening to today. I mean, you've literally trained over 15,000 people, right? Sitting in this space. I love what you said there in terms of, hey, I was training the American audience and it was awesome. Then I started going elsewhere and it didn't fly. Right. And so there's this and I want to hear about this more uh, later in our conversation in terms of biracial, multi-ethnic, that experience. You know, uh, I mean, there are so many different things that lead us back to this road of everybody's different. Right. Yeah. Uh, Every everybody experiences culture different. And so with that being said, I want to ask you another question. I thank you for sharing that. Um, When you look at your training, right, you train people, you equip Mm -hmm. and empower people in this area of cultural intelligence, emotional intelligence, diversity and inclusion. You've, uh, you know, I don't know, the number's probably bigger now, but last time I checked, I mean, you had trained over 15,000 different people, right? Yeah. That's a lot of people, that's a great sample size. My question to you is, what pattern have you seen, right, uh, in the trainings of all of these individuals, uh, whether good or bad, can you name some patterns that you've seen, like, man, I always run into this, or, they people never seem to fully grasp this part. What are some patterns that you've seen? Oof, that's a big question. So I think I need to be audience specific here. Sometimes when I've, um, let me deal with the positive. I think that when I've trained audiences on anti-racist strategies and we've done a, um, a, it's an activity that takes a look at privilege. Who has privilege, who doesn't have privilege? And this is multifaceted. And we look at eight elements of identity, right? And, and, and it's, a, it's a flower. And what you do is you write in different aspects of your identity, like your gender, your socioeconomic status as a child, of course, your, your race or your ethnic identification, sexual orientation, there's eight. And then I go through and I present 
what the dominant identifications in the United States are. And if your personal identification is different than the dominant one in the U.S., I ask you to tear a petal off. So some people are left with no flower. Some people with two petals. I think I have two petals left. I think now three. I added one more and it's three. And then after I get the doctorate, I'll have four, right? Um, and then, uh, and some people have full petals. And the people with full petals have the most privilege. And I'm telling you, Josiah, this has been the game changer for people who walk in going, look, I'm inclusive. I have, I have people of color in my life. I, I'm generous. I'm a nice person. Mm-hmm. And they come in with that, with, with well intentions. Mm-hmm. And then they look at that and they're like, ooh, I have never had to factor in my skin color or let's say my gender into any conversation, into any moment where I thought, could this person be excluding me? Could I have lost that opportunity because of my skin color, mm-hmm. because of my gender? Because a whole lot of people have had to but they haven't. And that's been a major game changer. And I'm going to stay with the positive because I think that's good. Of course, I've, mm-hmm. I've come into a lot of uh, people who are not so keen to be yeah. in presentations because they've had to be there by whatever authority told them you need to be here. And those mm-hmm. have, what's cool about those is that I've been able, I, we, my team, and I have been able to turn some of those situations where people did not want to be there and would even interrupt our presentation. Uh, and we've, we've shifted the dynamic um, and, and helped them maybe change their minds a little bit or mindset a little bit. That's happened. Interesting. Interesting. So you would say that, you would say that when you are training people, one of the things that you've seen as being preeminent thread is this exercise that you do on privilege yeah that's the game changer yeah awesome often yeah often it has been and i think yeah that's been it along with a a couple of other things but uh, this year especially especially Mm -hmm. with people trying to understand black lives matter people understanding aapi um, asian american pacific islander heritage under, mm-hmm. trying to reconcile all of the different things that have happened in what I call the year of the triple pandemic, COVID-19, um, racism, and polemics mm-hmm. fueled by politics. Yes. In people trying to reconcile with this, that's been the activity that's helped them understand, oh, okay, now yeah. I get, now I get why, why there have been protests. Now I get why Black Lives matter and and i should be maybe framing it this way instead of all lives let matter right, right. the all lives right. matter conversation gets reconciled when people understand privilege and listen i don't do it in a shaming way mm-hmm. this is i i try to make it as as holistic as possible recognizing that typically white men especially those who grew up in poverty or in lower financial situations they don't always have an easy time recognizing privilege because not having money sucks. Not having money prevents access from a lot of things. Mm -hmm. So I try to negotiate that in there and saying, listen, I get that. You've had to pull yourself up. I get that. But you are likely not going to face any sort of incrimination by virtue of your skin color or your gender. And that matters. Yeah. That's powerful, and I want to. I want to. I want to come back to that, um, you know, here in a little bit because I think that understanding these definitions and understanding these concepts uh, help us to see the macro level. Uh, and I think when you start talking about something such as racism or diversity, these these concepts that we're talking about, I think you we need we all of us need to understand both macro and micro, right? Yes. We need to understand yes. how everyone's being affected culturally globally and we need to understand individual and I know the individuals and I know that you do a lot of work on on empathy and compassion and so I want to make sure that we we remember this part of the conversation now when you start talking about diversity right as a construct a lot of times many times oftentimes people throw out words so much so that these words become watered down they become diluted right one of these words is diversity 
And I think that, you know, at its basal level, I think that we need to start to define these words and define some of these things so that we all start speaking the same language, so to speak. And so I want you to talk about diversity, right, as Mm -hmm. a construct, as an experience. Um, And I want you to talk about the biggest misconception that happens when people start using this word. So Mm -hmm. if you don't mind, I give you the floor. Yeah. Well, listen, diversity is a fact. It's a fact. And so often people see diversity as a threat. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at diversity, and again, to reiterate what I already said, because I think it's important, it's not just people's skin color. It is also gender, gender identity. It is generation. I, being born in the 70s, am going to approach the workplace very differently than somebody born in 2000 or somebody born in 1950. We're, we're different that way. We bring different lenses. My growing up cross-culturally is another lens, right? We have all of these different things that are just facts. So then when you come into your second question, how do people sometimes receive it, if I understood it correctly? A lot of the times big, people... Yeah, the misconception. The, the misconception. misconception is that diversity is a threat. Mm. That somehow if... Now listen, I'm going to use contentious language here, but I'm, I'm paraphrasing what I hear often. If we, as in maybe people of whiteness, let them in, so um, immigrants, uh, black and brown individuals, uh, any of this type, right? If we let them in, we will no longer have jobs, right? It's this sudden threat level kind of thing Mm -hmm. that instead of saying and recognizing what the research says, according to Harvard Business Review, 2018, I believe, that diverse teams in professional settings, although they take longer to get off the ground, diverse teams increase innovation by over 40%, four zero. So that's huge. So, so a lot of times people look at diversity from a deficit perspective mm-hmm. when truly there's, there's asset, there's incentive for doing this. Because, and I'll give you an example, Josiah. In my company, the, the person who I work most closely with is a Middle Eastern female, about seven years apart in age, but, you know, pretty much the same. After 40, we're all the same. We're all the same age, right? You'll be 40 until you're 50. And I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But um, we think a lot alike. She also has an English professor background. And it is it has been the most symbiotic, harmonious relationship I've ever had working with another individual. It, it has just been bliss. But I know something about something. And in practicing what I preach, my she and I working together as often is rooted in affinity bias. We like each other because we know each other so well because we're so much alike. Mm -hmm. So what I have to do conscientiously and consistently is loop in somebody or somebody's else who think differently, look differently, act, believe differently, and inevitably they sit down, they poke holes in our work, they create... 15 more hours of work for us, but it is always better, sharper, and more well-received. And I'll tell you what, when we factor in diversity, we become better people. Yeah. I love Can it. I answer I your it. question? No, I answered that, your question. That was very rich, and it gives us a lot to, to chew on. Uh, I love the stat there about the increase in productivity and innovation, uh, just different perspectives, right? Um, some si- sometimes too much of any one thing is not good. It becomes very limiting. Um, yeah. I, I like what you said about diversity being a fact, right? This in this pie, there are X amount of this, X amount of that, X amount. It's a it's a fact, right? Um, and we it's, it's easy for people to look at it as a threat. I, I have never uh, heard it put that way before, and so thank you for sharing that. Um, when, it, when you start talking about tokenization, right, all these hiring practices, and as you know, working in academia, higher level academia, we see that we see that as very prolific. You see it in the highest level of sport, 
the highest level of government, the highest level of any sphere. Uh, we start talking, we start hearing this word of tokenization, token, right? Oh, we got one of those. We got three of them, you know. I want you to talk about that. And I'm not even going to give you a slant either way. I just want you to talk about <laughs> that. Oh, I will. I will. Okay. So our country is still at the point. I'm, I'm talking in generalizations, right? There are some mm-hmm. companies who are doing this well. Are, we're still at the representation point, Josiah, where it is now actually are are. Are the le- is the leadership within your organization, your department, your wherever we are in your government? We'll talk about that in just a second. Does it reflect its constituency, or its stakeholders, or its customers? However, we want to look at it. I, that parallelism was off, but English majors around the world will forgive me. But um, oh, and uh, are we okay, sound wise? No, you're good. Perfect. We're good. Okay, so representation happens when we admit to the diversity and we we admit that we need people who can reflect back to whoever we're serving themselves. Here's where the problem is. Uh, We have a woman, we have a black person, we have this. Check, check, check. We took one diversity workshop. It took an hour and a half. It cost $10,000. We're good. Yeah, that's the problem, Josiah. That's when the tokenization and the performative allyship happens. And the performative allyship here, the uh, the performative here is saying we checked a box, but we're not actually doing anything to create real change and authentic inclusion. So where York and that's that's where tokenization happens, where now it's just where we're going to put these people on our brochures to let you know. Oh, we know, but that's it. Now, where we come in, where, where a DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion firm comes in to take it beyond tokenization or performative is to say, okay, do the people of color, do the people of margin, do the diverse people, looking at all of those cultures I talked about, do they actually feel like they can bring those aspects of their diversity to work? Mm-hmm. Or do they feel like they have to hide them? You'd be surprised at how many of us have to hide aspects of our identity in order to fit in with whatever's dominant. Yes. So companies now, they stop at hiring when they need to move beyond hiring to retainment, to -hmm. professional development, to ongoing um, check-ins with the, the people within their company to say, are your ideas being valued? Are you being represented? So it's not just this tokenization. And then moving forward to teaching teams how to be more inclusive, teaching managers how to, because um, it takes work to take in the feedback of multifaceted individuals and incorporate those into projects. It takes a lot to put knowledge into action. Yeah. You, you said, you, can I cut you off real quick? Of course. Because, because a lot of times when you just, you just drop some gems and I was trying to pick them up and then you just kept on going. So, so oh, I'm, being, I, I'm, I'm, being, I'm being very <laughs> selfish here. I'm being very selfish here. I hope you guys can forgive me. So uh, you said that many companies stop at representation and they do yeah. not go. Uh, I, I believe you said uh, uh, hiring, development, check-ins, replication. Can you just give us those? Can you, you know, uh, drop those gems one more time? Because it was almost like okay. you took us on this journey where it's yeah. like, no, it, you know, when it comes to uh, token, Token doesn't matter. Tokenization does not matter in the long run. In the long run, you know, working back from the biggest thing that you just told us most recently, which was the replication and the work that goes in and working backwards into the check-ins. Hey, how are you doing? How are you being professionally developed? I would love for you to just to repeat that even in bullet point format. Yes. Okay. So keeping in mind that representation is that first step. Do we have people on board who look like us? Inclusion, then, is the work. That's the action. Making sure that those who are diverse, at all people, forget just the people who are diverse, that all of 
the people within our organization have the means to understand what is the company culture? What are the values that we're upholding? Um, what professional development do we need to be better team members? For management, how do I understand my diverse team members? How do I call from all of their different skill sets or as many as possible that's realistic? And how do I integrate those into the projects that we're working on? So the content is actually reflective of the representation, mm. right? It's one thing to have people on board who check a box, and it's another to integrate their ideas, their perspectives, all of the assets that they bring into those deliverables. Companies, well, first of all, in the United States, we're still working on representation. Keeping in mind, a hundred years after women received the right to vote in the United States, we got our 100 years it took to get a woman in the White House at the highest levels. Turns out she was also a brown and black woman, which I very much appreciate. But Josiah, it took a hundred years just mm -hmm. to get to representation. That's, that's saying something right there. So we are still there organizationally across this country. I, I'm not going to speak for other cultures because it's uh, other countries because it's it's too much. Or I'm going to I'll situate in the United States. But um, so that's where we're working on. So now what I, what we're doing and what other DEI companies should be doing is helping companies integrate into the inclusion part of it. And there's a lot that goes into it. Yeah. I mean, for us, we we hope to work with people between four and 12 months mm -hmm. you know anyway i'll stop so this is so this is not just a i love the way you put it it was a little tongue-in-cheek but it was it was it was very valid uh you know you, you paid your 10 grand for a 90-minute workshop check and that's what this subject that uh, has touched millions tens of millions of people in such a personal way has been relegated yeah. to and it's yeah. a shame it's an absolute yeah. shame they're wasting their time and their money and we have learned that way that we've come in sometimes to do one workshop and it that's not okay and we've mm -hmm. had to pivot and we've had to have real conversations with people saying listen this needs to be a long term not a one and done it just we have to respect the process of change and you don't change after an hour and a half of powerpoint slides so. yeah i'd like to hear your thoughts those, that, that, those are very uh powerful insights that you brought and I'm thank you for sharing that um, because I feel like I'm learning again as I listen to you as you being an expert in this area you know you look at you know our country you look at church right they say church is the most segregated place on Sunday right 100% uh, you look at prisons you look at schools okay. uh, you look at different areas and, and we notice that when things start to heat up people separate right when things start to heat up politically uh, racially, socially, economically, right? Within any organization, within any unit, within any structure, any strata. When things heat up, we see this common theme in mankind, people start to separate. And they start to separate more towards those that look like them, uh, those that experience life together um, in, in a similar manners, those who have a similar upbringing from a similar side of town, you get where I'm going. Um, in your opinion, right, in your opinion, in your professional opinion, we've gone through many iterations, many revolutions of change, right? That's the one thing yeah. that everybody's calling for. Uh, change. We, things need to get better. Um, we, need to, we need to come together. We, unit, we need to unify. Some people say that, hey, you know what? It's, it's, it's all in you know, voting and it's all in the politics. Some people say we need to change our education. Some people say, you know, it's it's a matter of faith. Everyone has his or her input into uh, this situation that we're dealing with nationally and internationally uh, as it relates to race relations. In your opinion, can you ever combat that human element of when things heat up, we separate or is there thing, are there things that we can do to change the narrative? You've already alluded to some of those things, but yeah. how many more, how many more of these, these traumatic events must happen for us to change the narrative? Can we change? 
I mean, I don't know, Josiah. I mean, your question is so good, but it's so complex. I'll just say this real quick. Can we? I'm going to start backwards. Can we change the narrative? So this morning, I read a statistic that the rate of anti-Semitism as it relates to violence against Jewish people in the United States and Europe, they, they cited New York City and, and the country of Germany specifically, has increased by 500%. Wow. All right? About seven, almost 80 years ago, mm-hmm. the fact emerged that 6 million Jews were executed over a number of years. There was a, for those people who were not around in the 90s, there was a movement called Never Again, where we were talking with people who were survivors, you know, in the 90s, they they were aging, um, they were, they were, you know, a lot of them were of advanced age by that point, and we were learning from them. We were hearing their narratives, and we were promising, not on our watch, 20 years later, Josiah, anti-Semitism has increased 500%. There is a Twitter thread going on right now that's saying Hitler was right. If you if you look at that. And I look at that and I and I and I listen to your 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 question. And on a visceral level, I'm stupefied. Mm. Right? I'm just like I'm stunned. I can't even believe in my lifetime that I've seen this p- progression. Mm-hmm. Of saying, we will fight for you. We will hide you if this should ever happen again. If neo-Nazism or anti-Semitism to now, the very same people, I know this from my Facebook feed, who I stood with and prayed with in the 90s, mm-hmm. have anti-Semitic rhetoric now. Anyway, so this is why it's an individual. It really... Each of us has to take responsibility and it's nuanced, Josiah, because when you talk about like you did schools and prison systems, you have to go back into the systemic issues that have created some of these disparities. Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, it really has been rooted in a lot of racism. And I know within schools right now, a big issue is, is do we or do we not allow critical race theory? And I think what's interesting is that people villainize the theory without, without looking first at what it's asking of educators. And I think at the heart of critical race theory, whether you're at the educational, at the uh, penal system, at the governmental system, at the organizational system, if you look at what critical race theory is asking, it's saying when we have a group of people and they're all, we're asking them all to go toward the same goal. Have all of them been given fair access to go, to get to that goal? And if not, why not? And if not, how do we get them, not to the goal, but how do we give them access so that they can get to that goal? Somehow, going back, that's seen as a threat. If I give to others what I already have, I will no longer have. But that's not the issue. The issue is if I give to others what I already have, then we both have. That, in my estimation of what this theory, I'm talking about the bare bones without getting into all of the stuff. And this is not necessarily social. We're not talking about socialism or we're talking about critical race theory at its basal, at its basal roots. Like this is what it means. This is the definition. Just to be clear. Just to be clear. And this is what it's asking of us. Yeah. So wherever our responsibility is, how can we create a sense of fairness? This is equity. Mm-hmm. Equity is not treating everybody the same. It's giving everybody the same access. Equality is secondary to... Uh, you can't be treat everybody equally until you have maintained equity. Right? You can't do it. You can't. It's impossible. You can't go in Martin Luther King. You can't tell everybody to pull themselves up by their bootstraps unless they all have boots. So right now, we're at a boot level conversation. Everybody needs boots before we can all pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. If that's what they're asking us to do. 
Yes. And your second, your other question, your real question here, Josiah, it's generational. We have to take responsibility. We have to teach our children and it has to be a progressive system, systemic, systematic mm-hmm. transformation that happens in order to uh, respond to a right. systemic, systematic um, history that has occurred, that has gotten us to where we are. So it is a long, this is a long game, long answer to an issue that I don't know will ever be solved here and now. Right. So this is interesting because I don't know if you're reading my notes, but um, that was the next question I was going to ask you in terms of, you know, let's talk about diversity. Let's talk about racism. Let's talk about culture. Let's talk about cultural intelligence, this, this world that we're in right now as it relates to the generations, right? And we don't have to get into, you know, the, the, the bolts and nuts of everything right here, but just at a, at a broad level, right? You look at the millennials, millennials by 2025, I think one stat has been quoted as saying that by 2025, 75% of the global, not United States, the global working community, the global workforce will be millennials. By 2025, three in four people will be millennials. They might be your boss. They might be my boss. I don't know. That's yeah. huge. And gener- and the Generation Z coming behind them is even bigger than them. The Generation yeah. Z is even bigger than them, right? And then you have, you know, my generation, our generation, right? D- d- depending on what scientist you're listening to, you know, I'm a, I'm a millennial <laughs> or I'm a or I'm a you know Generation Xer. I'm a Generation Xer, right? So we grew up Me on. Me too. You know what I mean? Like Generation Xers out there. You know, we grew up on what? I mean, 90s, like, right? MTV, you know, uh, Desert Storm, right? Yeah. We grew up on, you know, we saw OJ Simpson. We saw, we saw the LA riots. Yep. Right? I learned Mac- to type on a typewriter. There you go. That's a huge you, one. Typewriter. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's our generation. Then you have your baby boomers, right, who are navigating this thing completely differently. Right. They grew up watching JFK and what happened to him, the, tra- the tragic events that happened, you know, uh, during the civil rights era, Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah. Right. Woodstock. Right. And we have all of these, you know, and then you have your millennials who are, you know, YouTube generation, social media, you know, uh, first black president. Right. Yeah. We're all navigating this thing called culture, this thing called racism, this thing called diversity and inclusion. You know, we're all navigating this very differently. And so my question to you is, you know, you you probably already answered it, but I would love to hear your thoughts and the interplay between the generations. Who who gets it? Who doesn't get it? Where is it going? Right. Baby boomers are leaving at 10,000 people a clip every day, every day. 10,000 like people are leaving the workforce, like retiring. Yeah, they're leaving the workforce. And so now yeah. you have, you know, the generation, you know, Y or the millennials who are going to take over. And they have a completely different way of looking at this topic that you and I are speaking about today. I just like for you to put some flesh on the bone, meat on the bone in terms of some of your thoughts between the generations. That is a hard question. I will say in fairness. I have met people from all generations who are totally on board with the inclusive conversation. And I have met people from multi-generations who are not on board. Now, I have met fewer individuals from Gen Z who are not on board. Mm -hmm. I will say that when you're born into a culture where inclusivity and the idea of belonging is kind of part of the fabric of what you're hearing, especially on social media, depending on where you are, uh, maybe it's it's familiar, so it seems acceptable. So I will say that I can't give like a generational kind of temperature, if you will, but I will say that the younger generation, uh, millennial and even Gen Z, like our children, Josiah, your and my children, mm-hmm. they're open to having the race conversations. My son is white presenting, and he has had he's asked me hard. He's six. He's asked me hard conversations about his friends who are brown, his mom who is brown, his sister, one of his sisters is brown. You know, what does that mean for him? He asked me this question. Mm -hmm. That is the Mm -hmm. hugely cognitive question for a six-year-old to kind of 
have to tap, have to wrap his head around because he's understanding there's difference here. What does that mean for our family? Um, it just so happens most of his friends are people of color, and he wants to understand what that means for him. Mm-hmm. Ah, that's thrilling to me. Um, I don't know, Josiah, how to answer your question in any other way because it's hard. So I'll, I'll let you ask a different one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a loaded question, and I and I do think that more people, you know, are becoming educated. Yeah. Uh, and and you know the, the the younger generations that are coming up, they're not stupid, and they see what's going on, and they yes. know they know how their mom and dad were treated. They yes. know the musings of some of their friends, right? They're not yeah. stupid. Uh, no. And, go, and I, if I may, if I may, I want to add something because I think this is critically important to the generational conversation. Keep in mind, Josiah, what we learned in the 80s and 90s about being colorblind. Being colorblind and not seeing color was seen as the right thing to do. So there's an entire generation of parents who are likely boomers, maybe greatest generation, and then Gen Xers and maybe even some millennials who have actually have a hard time pointing out, oh yeah, my friend is black, or oh, my friend is uh, Indian, or my friend is... Hispanic, whatever. They have a hard time with that because they've been taught, don't talk about these things. Right. So there's this silence that has stifled us, if you will. And now what the research is saying and what cultural, um, you know, authorities are saying is, yes, we do recognize color. We do recognize culture. We recognize these things because these are the things that make us who we are. So now it's that shift in education. A lot of people don't know how to have these conversations because they've never had them. I have so much empathy for that. You, yeah, you too. You're raising I, your hand. I have a question for you, doctor. Yeah. I have a question for you. I have, Almost, doctor. Yeah, yeah. No, we're, we're going to call it out. <laughs> so I have had great conversations with white friends, with my white friends, right? Yeah. And... A lot of them, not all, but a lot of them use that term like, oh, I'm colorblind. I don't see color. Right. And you've just stated some research. And what I want you to do is I want you to explain in the most pointed way that you can why being colorblind. Oh, I don't see color. I don't care if you're black, yellow, brown, red. I don't see it. I don't see color. We're all the same. We all bleed. The same blood, same color blood, right? I want you to explain why that term, that that phrase is so insidious, especially to people of color and black people. Because if you say you're colorblind, unless you're literally colorblind and can't see green and blue, you're you're lying. You are lying. It's not true. You you can see color. Josiah, I can see your skin tone. Mm -hmm. I can see my skin tone, right? And we see it. And I think it's important. Now, listen, if I judge you because of it, that's a completely different story. That's a story. different thing. Yeah. Yep. But seeing it is, is okay. And listen, even let's go on the, on the cosmetic level. I have never been able to match my skin tone because I can remember I'm multi-ethnic to a correct foundation. It's always been too orange or too light or too this. And it has been frustrating. Rihanna, in the last five years has been a forerunner, of course, she's also a woman of color, who recognizes this, who's come out with this amazing line of all sorts of shades, recognizing women of color, women of multi-ethnicities. And mm-hmm. guess what, Josiah? I got a color. That, it took me until I was 40 years old to finally wow. get a shade that matched, right? Even looking at hair texture, It took me until I was 35 or 40 to finally have products that were available Mm. to work with my curly hair. That, and what I mean by that is when you're not recognizing that the difference exists, you can't attend to it. These people are going to be left out. They're not going to be served. They're not going to be seen. Your colorblindness erases people. Right. That's powerful. Anyway, and so that's look, powerful. I'm happy about all the makeup that's coming out. <laughs> <laughs> Lego. 
So I, I'm, I'm going to do something uh, that you're not expecting, but I'm going to give you three words and I'm going to allow you to respond with the one word that comes to your mind when I tell you these three words. Okay. And then I'll let you explain. So um, we're, I'm going to give you three words. And when I give them to you, I want you to respond with the one word that comes to your mind. And then I'll have you explain that. Fair? Yes. All right. Three words. Racism. Diversity. Comfort. What comes to your mind when you hear these three things in succession together? Oof. Oh, together. One word for all three? Yeah, when you, when you see these words together, if, you, if we have our proverbial Venn diagram and we see these three words, right? What comes to your mind when you see racism, diversity, and comfort? United States. Please explain. Right now, we have a fact of diversity that is created, a culture that largely has been based in racism, in systemic racism. I'm not saying that everybody is a racist. I'm saying that a lot of our uh, formation is rooted in racist concepts. And listen, go look at the prison pipeline. Go look at redlining. All of these words. Go Google them all on up, all right? Or hire us and we'll help you figure it out, all right? It's rooted in that. And yet there are so many people who are comfortable where they are or are afraid of moving into discomfort. But acknowledging diversity and dealing with racism is uncomfortable. Yes. And right now, that's where the United States is. That's powerful. I mean, I I wasn't even thinking about that. Um, when I saw those three words, I'm like, man, uh, it's almost impossible for them to exist without doing something. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Like, it's, it's impossible yeah. for them to exist without doing something about one of those yeah. things. Yeah. Um, and and, if I, if and, I and might, successfully. Oh, no, yeah, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, say I want to say one thing in case people are, ask me or people may like, well, where, where is this woman when it comes to the United States? I'm actually a proud American. I find that my being born in the generation that I was born in the country that I was born with the gender that I have, I have privilege that very few women in all of history in all of the other nations likely have not had i don't comparatively i don't know but just you know high level factually i do know and i'm thankful to be an american but because i am an american i have a civil duty to question some of the constructs and some of the issues in my country and to say we can do better. Our mm. forefathers said, they, they put forth a radical idea that was based on questioning and pushing back and saying this may or may not work, but let's give it a shot. Mm-hmm. With the knowledge that this is going to be happening again and again, I'm taking up that mantle and I'm saying I'm going to question in the same way they did because I am an American through and through. Amen, sister. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, you know, when you, I, I want to pivot as we get into the, uh, the the final part of our interview. And thank you again for uh, just gracing us with your presence and just the information and content that you share has been awesome. Um, I want to focus on um, cultural intelligent training and consulting, what you do on a regular basis. Uh, and in terms of empowering, equipping, and just arming people with the knowledge and the know-how to be able to tackle some of these issues. You, you gave us a model earlier in terms of, you know, the, the, the flower exercise, right? Mm-hmm. Hey, if you're 
if you're white, if you are uh, male, if you, you know, fill in the blank in terms of the different areas, the categories, if you will, of privilege. Um, are there any are there any mo other models? And I don't want you to give away your secret sauce because that's why people hire you. But are there any uh, simple models that you would recommend or that you would give us to go and look up things that you you guys do uh, that you believe in that are sound yeah yes so our entire uh company is is based in the framework that i've that we've reconceptualized based on early anong's original framework and that is this that cultural intelligence is there's three capabilities the first capability of cultural openness is driven by curiosity are we curious to learn about others? The second capability is cultural awareness, which is driven by empathy. How is our desire to feel what other people are feeling uh, influencing what we know and what we need to know and what we already know? Then the final, all three have to work in tandem, mm -hmm. is the cultural responsiveness, which is driven by compassion, which is empathy in action. So often there can be empathy bias. We feel more toward people who are like us or empathy fatigue. We're so busy feeling, we don't know what to do. The responsiveness part is where we're now putting empathy into action with compassion. I am doing something to acknowledge that curiosity and that awareness. So in answering your question, and that's the, that's the model that we use, that's cultural intelligence. We come alongside organizations, ideally, in a four, six, or 12-month relationship mm -hmm. where we come in, we audit where the company is just in representation and in um, giving people a mixed method, so qualitative and quantitative um, survey, taking mm -hmm. a look at, hey, how would you rate your organization holistically? How about the leadership? How about your direct team? How would you... How would you rate it on inclusivity and practices and all of those kinds of things? Lots and lots of questions there. Mm -hmm. And then we go and we take a look at that. And from there, we customize a long, a short game and a long game, short, mid, long, right? How maybe we help them uh, do leadership development. Maybe we help them build committees. Maybe we bring um, a series of trainings alongside. It's a multifaceted approach of consultation and training and organizational, um, we're, we're taking a look at what the organization is doing. We're taking a look at their language on mm. their website. We're helping them develop a diversity statement. We're helping them, um, we're looking at their phrasing in their recruitment language, because that mm. can be racist and that can exclude yeah. people unintentionally. Josiah, we're trying to get there in that game, in this long haul process, recognizing that we might have to work with fewer companies to actually get deeper in mm. the long term. So that's what we do. It looks different. Every company is different. So our work with each of them looks different. But overall, that's what it looks like. That's great. I, I really appreciate that. Uh, model because mm -hmm. everything is going towards individualization and as you know better than most when you're working with people everyone is different everyone has different needs yeah. everyone has different value systems and and I love the fact that you're walking alongside you're not you yeah. know telling them where the fish are you're not fishing for them you're not giving them fish dinners you're saying let me teach you how to do this and then empowering yes. them to teach their people that is where it's at and i really want to commend you for that because um you know it's easy to make money right and have clients yeah. but when you're doing this game changing work this world changing work uh that model uh, will stand the test of time so i just want to commend yeah. you in that and say thank you because uh, the world needs it yeah Thank you. And listen, we're still figuring it out. This year has taught us a whole lot. And I forgot to say the third part is program assessment. We actually go back and see if what we did worked. And we've learned this year that there's a lot of things that work, but we could be doing better at them. And now we're working. We're at that second tier of making it better. And and it's the on, it's the, mm -hmm. you know, the awareness and the responsiveness. We have to go back and forth to figure that out. And so we are trying to practice what we preach. No, that's great. That's great. Uh, 
a little personal question. Uh, you know, whether you're talking about whether you're talking about a company, right? Whether you're talking about an athletic team, whether you're talking about a family, a church, whatever the case may be, the individuals who belong to the leadership, right? Often their personal values and their worldview, their purview is what drives the vision, the success, the failure, and the outlook of that unit. And so if you don't mind, just share with us, you know, your lens in terms of maybe it's your faith, maybe it's, you know, some of the things that you shared earlier uh, regarding your experience, you know, even when you first started training, are there any key markers that drive this engine that is called culturally intelligent training and consultant? Yes. So we do have values. It's okay. We have our values, of course. And, and, um, you know, I think inclusivity and accountability are part of that. But I think all of it, Josiah, is really, really rooted in the values that drive cultural intelligence, curiosity, empathy, compassion. As a leader, I try to uphold those values as a parent, as a sister, as a friend. And I try to model them and I try to hold others within my sphere of influence accountable to them. And that's what good leaders do. Good leaders don't just say that those are their values. They model them. They make them explicit. And then they learn where others may or may not understand those things or where others might differ and try to come to an understanding. Right? That's cultural intelligence, those values, and taking a, take, uh, take a look at who we are, who do we want to be, and how are we holding all of ourselves accountable. Awesome. And, and for, I mean, I know you, you know, my wife and I, Erin, we know you, and we know those things to be true in your life. So there's definitely congruence in what you practice, what you preach. Good. And what you teach, so <laughs> most of the time. <laughs> that, yes, that's awesome. And and we one of the things I appreciate about you, uh, you and Greg, is that you are very real. You are salt of the earth people, and you're just very real. And it is something that uh, goes lost in this world. It's a lost art, um, you know. In this cut and paste, you know, you know type of world, it's just like man, you guys are very real people. And so um, that to me is is something. Uh, that I value uh, in people. And so thank you for your authenticity. And as we get ready to close, I'm going to give you the mic. Thank you again so much for for joining us. Uh, And I want you to do two things for us. I want you to tell us where we can find you online and otherwise, how we can get a hold of you. We'll also put those in the show notes, uh, how we can uh, seek you out in terms of contracting your services or uh, just follow you online. And then I would also like for you to share, you know, some of, you know, the musings and the mullings and the thoughts that have been on your heart, in your head and in your heart lately that, you know, you just want to share, you know, with, with the people that uh, may be listening here today. Hmm. Well, first of all, thank you, Josiah. It's right back at you with you and your family. We love your family. I, I, I'm so very thankful for you and for your family and, and their contribution to, to my life and my family's lives. So I just want to say that and thank you for having me today. Now, for Culturally Intelligent, you can find us at culturallyintelligent.com or at Culturally Intelligent on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. I'm not so much on Twitter because Twitter just drives me a little bonkers. <laughs> but, um, but we are on, we have a good presence on LinkedIn and Instagram and Facebook. So we invite you there and listen, we are here for an initial conversation. You are dealing with people. You're not dealing with uh, an enterprise. Okay. I'm I'm not, nothing against enterprises, but we are people to people and we'll talk to you. We'll figure out, we'll help you work within your budget. We'll give you a realistic look and scope on what you need and how to bring forth deliverables because truly we want to leave you better than we found you. My goal is to leave an organiza- empower an organization to do the work themselves and not need us anymore. It's like the same thing. My big thing with my kids is to give them autonomy, to know that I have reared adults who can do it on their own. And yeah, they'll still need me here and there, yeah, yeah. but I, I, they go, they fly. 
anyway, and what's been on my heart, honestly, Josiah, it's making, I, there are so much that I still don't know. And I'm keenly aware of that, not in a self-deprecating way, in a realistic way. And there is so much to this diversity, equity, inclusion conversation that works and so much that doesn't. And right now, we are, we are working together as a team to deliberate what's working and what's not. And as a person, what's working and what's not. As a wife, mother, friend, all of the things that I'm doing. So that means that I'm creating boundaries, right? Mm -hmm. I'm saying, what can I do and what can't I do and what ought I do next? And I think that's the thread that's going through all the areas of my life. And it's making me more culturally intelligent. And I'm thankful for that. That's great. That's great. You know, it's, it's a, the reason why that's great is that I personally, and I know that many people are the same, appreciate leaders like yourself who are constantly learning, who are constantly trying to get better, who are constantly improving. And you have the humility to say, there's a lot that I don't know, but you continue to forge ahead. And so that is honorable, my friend. Um, Thank you again. And God bless you. Thank you, you too, and God bless you too, Josiah. Dr. Egano. <laughs> <laughs>